Good evening, everyone. Welcome to tonight's Points of View Lecture, When Ballet Became Dangerous, Shostakovich Trilogy and the Soviet Past. My name is Andy Yanoni, and I am the Interim director, director of Education and the Administrative Manager of San Francisco Ballet School. You'll find in the lobby a brochure that lists all of the education programs for adults that have been designed to inspire and engage our audience. In fact, there are two workshops coming up that are related to tonight's theme. The Seeing Ballet workshop on April 11th focuses on the Shostakovich trilogy. And there are a few more tickets left for the Monday night Talk About Ballet lecture, Ready, Aim, Dance, Danger, and Soviet Ballet. You can purchase tickets on our website. Before we begin tonight's POV, a little housekeeping. Today's date is Wednesday, April 8th, and you can catch this lecture along with other points of view lectures and meet the artist's interviews on the Interact se section of the ballet's website. Following this evening's presentation, please exit to your right. Those with tickets for the performance should have their tickets scanned by the house staff. And finally, we always ask our presenters to allow time for questions. If you would like to ask a question, please do so at the microphone located in the center aisle so that your question will be heard by all in attendance and captured for the podcast. And now I'll introduce our speaker who will sign copies of her book, Like a Bomb Going Off, in the shop at SF Ballet on the box level immediately following her presentation. A professor at Stanford University, Janice Ross is the director of Italic, a new residential arts immersion program. She is the author of four books, the most recent of which is Like a Bomb Going Off, Leonid Jakobsen and Ballet as Resistance in Soviet Russia, just published this year by Yale University Press. Janice has been the recipient of numerous awards, including Guggenheim and Fulbright Scholar Fellowships. She's a noted dance critic and was on the staff of the Oakland Tribune for 10 years and for 20 years the San Francisco contributing editor to Dance Magazine. Her articles on dance have appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, among other publications. She's been writing about San Francisco Ballet since 1975. Please welcome Dr. Janice Ross. Thank you very much, Andy, and thank you. So the material I'm sharing with you tonight um, will involve a number of stories that uh, are in the book and in the project that Andy just referenced. And it's actually a pleasure to intertwine them with Shostakovich trilogy. Um, it's a, a very rich connection and one that I've explored just for tonight's presentation. Now the words ballet and danger don't actually sound as if they should ever share a sentence together. But there was a time in the not-so-distant past when they were deeply intertwined in Soviet Russia. And that subject, I think, is in fact a subtle but very powerful subtext 
of Alexei Ratmansky's remarkable and remarkably poetic and complex Shostakovich trilogy, this evening's ballet. I say remarkable because Ratmansky's work is both wittily fresh but also deeply historical. It's poetically complex because he very slyly shows us the art but also the danger that attached to it in the same mode of fleeting inference in which resistance was registered in Soviet times. As the title suggests, his focus is the work of the composer Dmitry Shostakovich, but there are other important artists of the Stalin era of government control over art who are powerful ghosts in the world Ratmansky conjures. His special area of interest has long been the Soviet past, which now seems to be threatening daily to become the Russian present as well. Ratmansky knows both intimately. Whoops. He was born in 1968, a native of St. Petersburg, and this 46-year-old choreographer trained at the Bolshoi School in Moscow, but as soon as he graduated, he left, dancing with the Royal Winnipeg, the Royal Danish, and also the Ukrainian National Ballet, until returning to dance with the Bolshoi, which he also directed from 2004 to 8. Since 2009, he's been resident choreographer for ABT and in demand internationally since winning the MacArthur Genius Award in 2013. Three years after he left the Bolshoi, his successor, Sergei Filin, was severely disfigured by a disgruntled dancer who arranged to have acid thrown in his face. So Ratmansky is a Slavophile, but he's also a realist. He captures the beauty, but also the terror lurking inside Russian art's past. And he nests these dueling sensibilities in his ballets. In the next 30 or so minutes that we have this evening, I would like to share with you a trip through three different layers of this complexity. The first will be, why was ballet dangerous? The second, how was resistance staged? And the third, what does Ratmansky do with all of this today? So I begin with the question of why was ballet dangerous? And I think one of the most telling but odd stories of the connection between ballet and danger has to do with the work Swan Lake. Now you may remember just a few weeks ago, for nearly 11 days in mid-March, Vladimir Putin went missing. His meetings were canceled, he disappeared from the public eye, and the Kremlin refused to explain what was going on. So speculation in Russia spun out of control. Was his mistress giving birth to a secret child? Had he had a stroke? Plastic surgery? Maybe it was a coup. Ukrainians at war with the Russian-backed separatists in the east of their country were particularly excited by the latter possibility of a coup. And Andrei Kapranov, who was a web marketer in Kiev, lost no time in creating this website up here, on which he tracked the Russian leader's disappearance. On the site, in big, bold numbers, it counted out in real time the days, hours, minutes, and seconds since Putin had last been seen in public. 
And in the background, and you can kind of glimpse it here, was a continuous loop of Swan Lake. Now, why Swan Lake? The use of Swan Lake in this context is a deliberately satiric nod by the Ukrainians to the Soviet-era cherishing of ballet as a symbol of official power. Since the times of the czars and the creation of the great classical Ivanov, Petipah, Tchaikovsky ballets in the 19th century, the well-regulated corps de ballet has come to be a symbol of social order. And I believe, in fact, it is where social compliance and civic obedience are registered visually and kinesthetically. Through the disciplined geometry of the corps de ballet and the shielding of what is also a militarized body inside of an aesthetic and often feminine exterior. Now, I've recreated for you here a, a 1970s um, Soviet era TV, but I'm dropping you into the early 80s, and I think a 70s era TV would have still been a hot commodity in 80s USSR. So Vladimir Putin is in fact just the latest in a long line of Russian leaders to use the arts to orchestrate political power. Russians have long understood this intimate connection between art and power, both its demonstration of holding power and its continual reinforcement of that power through censorship and rules designed to control art before it even reaches the public. Now, one seemingly trivial anecdote I stumbled upon when I was researching my book about ballet as resistance in Soviet Russia led me to a sudden insight about this. During the post-Brezhnev to Gorbachev era, it seemed that whenever an unexpected political event was about to unfold, state-controlled TV preempted all regular programming and began broadcasting Swan Lake in its full-length, four-act, three-hour expanse. This was the precise scenario in 1982, and this is a continuous loop, so you will get the full effect. This, is, this happened in 1982 with the sudden death of Leonid Brezhnev. 1984, Yuri Andropov died. 1985, Konstantin Chernenko died. So three leaders suddenly dead in three years. And then, each time one of them died, they were, um, there was no news released. Instead, it was Swan Lake for hours. Even in 1991, when the failed coup against Mikhail Gorbachev happened, it was heralded by official silence and a TV broadcast of this work, most emblematic of the purest form of classical ballet, danced to a score by the great Russian composer Tchaikovsky. I'm just going to pause it, because I'd like you not to walk out. In a final ironic citation in 2011, Long after the dissolution of the USSR, the 20th anniversary of the 1990 coup attempt was commemorated with documentaries and a rebroadcast of Swan Lake on Russian national TV. This time, however, columns of tanks were not grinding through Moscow streets as they had been two decades earlier. Then the ballet had been used in part as an information blockade, but also a social palliative through squadrons of tutus. 
Going back to the Soviet Commissar of Enlightenment, Lunacharsky, dance and cinema were important mediums for messaging to a largely illiterate proletariat about the new Soviet state and its ideals and aspirations. The stages of the formal Im former imperial ballet, later the Kirov, and the Bolshoi were where the idealized, unmarked body of the citizen was manufactured. These broadcasts were more than a stalling tactic. I would argue they were social tranquilizers, a way to model civic compliance and social regulation through the dancing body, and music and ballet practices in which Soviet Russia set a world standard. The message was effectively, stay calm, dance on. Eventually, Swan Lake was so often the backdrop for Soviet political upheavals that Russians have told me just hearing the Tchaikovsky score and seeing a glimpse of it on TV triggered exactly the anxiety it was supposed to allay. Instantly, people knew that all was not well in Moscow. So this is the world of politicized ballet that Alexei Ratmansky inherited, and this is the climate of paradoxical tensions with which his ballets reward the attentive viewer. Dmitry Shostakovich, the Soviet composer who was a master of accommodation and resistance within a single score, is the musician to whom Ratmansky has been drawn most frequently. And I love this image of David Hallberg in Bright Stream. And this is another Ratmansky Shostakovich work. The Shostakovich ballets that you're seeing tonight are just three of 11 works that Ratmansky has created to Shostakovich music. He greatly admires the composer's work, and he shows us with rare subtlety how the alternately celebrated and censured composer's emotional state embedded itself in his compositions, along with his strategies for artistic survival. And this is a tiny clip of um, San Francisco Ballet's Shostakovich trilogy, which I'll let play a bit. Um, we'll see it in more depth in a few minutes. So this is music filled with subtexts, with codes, with personal motifs and shadows and darkness. The three scores for the ballet's three sections are each drawn from a different period in the composer's life. Beginning with the bitter 1945 Symphony No. 9, which Stalin faulted for not being celebratory enough to reflect, reflect the great glory of Russia's victory over the Nazis. And it proceeds through the dark and pain chamber symphony of the middle period and ends with the bounding 1933 Piano Concerto No. 1 of Tchaikovsky's youth for the third ballet. But most consistently, Shostakovich trilogy references a time in Soviet Russia when dances could be dangerous, when art was deployed as an ideological weapon and resistance could be covertly staged from within. So this brings us to the second layer. How was resistance staged? Dance as an ideological weapon dates most aggressively from the 1920s in Russia, 
when an impatience had begun about how to make ballets worthy of the new Marxist-Leninist state set in among uh, Russian leaders. This in turn played a significant role in transforming aesthetic experience. In place of the 19th century ballets exemplifying the grand classical aesthetic categories of the sublime and the beautiful, the athletic and acrobatic were now looked to as offering a more accessible vocabulary and aesthetic, one that would allow artists to comment on the relation between art and society in the contemporary moment. And then in 1929, this competition was announced in the leading Russian press. It was a competition for the best libretto for a new Marxist-Leninist ballet. It listed all of the ideological agendas that had to be met by the libretto, by the music, by the choreography. And the winning libretto was, that was so packed with cliches of party line correctness that it was almost undanceable. If you look at the list here, um, and just I'll call out a couple things, it had to have a revolutionary theme, um, it had to have a concrete perception of reality. This is socialist realism, no abstraction, no ambiguity. Um, that it had to utilize forms of pantomime, acrobatics, sports. It was thought that that kind of movement vocabulary would have a greater legibility to the large populace. Needed to be a full evening work. The radical young modernist choreographer Leonid Jakobsen was one of three who were selected to choreograph the ballet. Each was given an act and he was given the second act. This was an act filled with sports and acrobatic references and Shostakovich, who was in a period of rising success and fame, was commissioned to create the score, the first of the three ballets he would compose in the period of 29 to 35, Bright Stream and Bolt being the others. The ballet that resulted the Golden Age was a critical success, but it disappeared within a few performances. And in the Soviet media, it was retrospectively designated a failure. The Soviet leadership lashed out at Shostakovich's quoting of popular dance tunes in his score, and they lashed out at Jakobsen for his stripped-down sports references that were so clean and pure they bordered dangerously on the prohibited aesthetic of formalism or abstraction. Choreography vanished, and what remained were scattered accounts, some costume sketches, and Shostakovich's score was put away in the drawer for the next 34 years. Then in 1960, Jakobsen remounted and restaged for the Kirov a tiny fragment of the original choreography. And I just recently came upon this. Um, and I will show this to you. Um, it's the second act. It's pretty simple Shostakovich score at this point, but it's remarkable how pure and modern, this is 1930, the woman upstage here is danced by Ala Asopienko with the Kirov. He originally made it for Galina Ulanova, the great Russian ballerina, with her consort of four men. And all the moves are drawn from sports repertoire. It's on a classical body, but these are sports moves. And the dancers become both the, um, the prop and the athlete. 
They are the current for her swimming. But they don't become individual characters. They become kind of the medium of athleticism. Here you can call out each sport, a discus thrower, javelin hur hurler, high jumper. And just the simplicity of the delivery, how stripped down it is. There are two photos in the Russian archives. This is one which I think of as a slow motion backwards somersault. And it's like showing you the technology for the move rather than the move itself. And there is a moment of quoting from this in the Shostakovich trilogy. And now they become the high jump and the jumper. And it's just a simple punched out delivery, recovery, and then it's the next and the next. And Jakobsen was able to get fearless performances from his dancers because now she goes on a high diving board, which is the quartet of men, and does forward and backward falls from a full height. And they catch her with a rebound that does suggest she might be contacting the kind of resilient surface of water. And they wind into a final pose, which is also one of the two photos that exist from this moment. So this is the 1930, this is the first collaboration um, that Jakobsen does with Shostakovich. And he moves on to a number of other strategies. That, that was um, a success and then a rapid failure. Um, he was at that point a bit too exposed about his modernist impulse and he learns to hide it more deeply. In 1969, he worked with Mikhail Baryshnikov and created for him a ballet called Vestris, which we don't have time to look at this evening, but in it he tucks six different forbidden outlying personalities that don't appear on the Soviet stage um, in any legitimate way. A drunkard, a religious person, a dying elderly person, they're all the social outliers, and he takes this moment where he has the nation's and the world's spotlight on Russian ballet. He's asked to provide a vehicle for Baryshnikov to compete in the 1969 Moscow competition. And on that grand stage, he reveals the underside of Soviet society. Um, and Baryshnikov wins the gold medal with it. Um, Jakobsen comes under some uh, pretty intense scrutiny afterward. And it was also a competition at which the director of San Francisco Ballet, Helgi Thomason, competed. He won the silver to Baryshnikov's gold in 1969. And he attributes it in part, when I've spoken to him, to the um, revelation of Vestris. Now, this is a work made in 1954, and this is a moment where you really have to attend closely, but this is a kind of now you see it, now you don't intertext glimpse of another social outlier that Jakobsen embeds in his ballet that I believe is very much the way Ratmansky works. 
with the kind of hidden messages that flicker through his pieces. This is a work he makes um, in 1954 when the USSR is invited to participate in the kind of denazification of Vienna. And he makes uh, this small duet called Vienna Waltz. It's filled with all sorts of uh, dangerous asides. The music is Richard, not Johann Strauss. And in the midst of it is this series of amazing lifts. You'll see, I've moved the clip to right at that point. Um, and it is very much a Viennese, not a Russian waltz. And then in, in the midst of it, there is a tiny disclosure by the man to the woman. We could turn up the sound a little, please. These are complete 360 throws in the air. This is uh, one take. And this is... This is the euphoria after Stalin dies. This is what it felt like to, to quote Solzhenitsyn, he said it was a return to breathing. This is what it looked like in choreography. And the feel here of keeping the rhythm of a waltz going through whatever movement, even something as subtle as her simply turning away from him. So the flirtation is evolving, and now he wants to disclose something to her of who he really is. And in just a moment, out of nowhere, he breaks into this little pulse that looks like a Hasidic line dance from a Jewish wedding. He is telling her something about him on an intimate level, and then it sweeps back and it's a pure Viennese waltz. But it's just slid in there. I think this kind of feeling where we get just the flavor of a, an emotion is very much the kind of quality Ratmansky plays with repeatedly and masterfully in Shostakovich's trilogy. There's, it, it feels to me like watching a frothing sea that somehow keeps revealing and then submerging some tiny bobbing object in the waves, and you're not quite sure if you saw it or not. Now, Jakobsen went on to make his most controversial work called Jewish Wedding, um, which he made in 71. It took four years to be permitted on stage. If we could turn it up a bit. Shostakovich, trio for Solertinsky, Ivan Solertinsky. It's a portrait of a shtetl wedding, and it's the most somber funereal wedding imaginable. The figures are like wooden dolls. We could turn it up a bit. This is a rabbi. The line of figures enters, and what he hears in Shostakovich's music is this. This moment you're going to hear again. This is the klezmorum. Very clearly Jewish tune. And these are the musicians. They're in route to the synagogue off stage. We could turn it down a bit, thanks. So just to hear that theme, because Ratmansky plays with it, I think, in a really interesting citation. Um, so it's about false gaiety, it's about the great somberness underneath the surface of what should be a, a very joyous moment. And it doesn't get shown in Russia until October of 85, 
two months after Shostakovich has died, weeks before Jakobsen dies. So what does Ratmansky do with all of this today? And this is our final layer. These are some of the key ghosts of Shostakovich trilogy, which has been called an exemplary Ratmansky ballet. Exemplary because, first of all, it uses Russian music, Shostakovich, as we've been saying, but also, I think, because of this tone of both happiness, aggression, fear, and sorrow. And I want to show you a bit here of Symphony Number no. 9. Now, this is the lead dancers. This is their love duet. And if you look at them, they repeatedly and furtively look to the side. You have the feeling that someone is watching. And there's, there's the challenge of trying to connect and the, the, the enormous risk of trusting. At the very end of the duet, in fact, they lie down on the floor supine as if they were dead. So, so how is human contact possible in this kind of a climate of surveillance, of, of anxiety, about safety, about confidence? And the angst is not just Ratmansky's idea. It's part of how he responds to the Shostakovich score. And he hears in that this sense of these intruding forces from the surroundings. Furtive looks to the side. So it never grows and blossoms the way you would expect a love duet to. It's always edgy. And in comes a quartet of men. And they have this amazing entrance where they stroke as if pushing through the air or pushing through underbrush. Very furtive advance across the stage. And once Ratmansky describes it, every time you hear that passage in the music, you sense that stroking movement. And one of the signature features of Ratmansky is um, complication, fullness. His stage always percolates with activity. Groups compete with each other, they nest into each other, they peel off. You never get that dryly unified corps de ballet of Swan Lake. But instead, it's individualistic, it's clustered, it's contrapuntal, it's shifting. The footwork is very complex and dense. Within, a, within maybe two bars of music, you can see beats, jumps, turns, a whole host of complexities. Now, this is the very end, uh, the ensemble collapse, I call this, of Symphony Number no. 9. So Ratmansky again shows us what he hears in the music, that within a year of its premiere, um, as I said, the Soviet critics censored the symphony for its ideological weakness, uh, weakness as they called it. And what he hears is the mock 
pseudo-monumentality, the bombastic grandiloquence, and the dancers fall like cattle dying in a field, these sequential drops to the ground. It's like a deadly firing squad of collapsing bodies. And the music is celebratory, but the dancing is desultory. There's, it's perfunctory, it's a limp delivery of lifts and springs. I think of it as dutiful folk dancers at an office party. The music is celebrating victory, but it's shadowed with a different kind of defeat simultaneously. Jennifer Tipton is the masterful lighting designer for Shostakovich Trilogy, and she also listened to the score. And the action, if you attend tonight, is often spookily lit. It's half-lit, it's back-lit, it's side-lit. So it adds to that sort of aura of gloom and foreboding. But it's also intensely musical, the choreography. So the more manic the music gets, they are still pulled back in the delivery. All right. And this final just blacks out and fades on the line. All right, Chambers Symphony, the second um, of the th three parts of the trilogy. I'm gonna move through a little rapidly here time-wise. Um, this is the most narrative, um, the most really figurative uh, part of the Shostakovich trilogy. It's about fear and sorrow again. Um, and the backdrop has these faces that look as if they're broken off from classical sculpture. The hero of the ballet um, is constantly crumpling, reaching, um, this sense that he may be a proxy for Shostakovich. Jaime um, Garcia there in the black suit with no shirt. Again, the desperation of contact, nothing works out. He tries to hold hands with three different women slash muses. Now, and I love the way Ratmansky will just put a walk or a stand and a look in as part of the choreography if you look at the ensemble upstage. And get ready for the Klezmorum citation from the trio for Solartinsky. That's the moment. All right, just to press on here to the final piano concerto, these are the Komosol, the sisters of the Ulanova Ala Sopienko that I showed you in Golden Age, I believe. They're wearing the red of the Komosol, the young communist woman. And here, too, there's this sense, um, it's high-wire virtuosity, but also a feeling of dread, of trepidation. And this is the cast you're seeing tonight, Sofiane and Francis Chung. And notice how they shield each other against the ensemble. And I love the ensemble is, Ratmansky uses costumes wonderfully. 
they're half red and half gray, right? A affiliated and then wanting to blend into a kind of anonymity on the other half. that I talked about, the cluster. It's, you can't see it here, but the backdrop is um, sort of the detritus of a failed social experiment. Uh, hammer and sickle, stars, Tupolev airplane. And here at the very end, um, the women in these lifts as they exit, to me looks like very much the double-headed eagle um, that is a reference to the Tsar's box at the Bolshoi, the great symbol of the Tsar's, the vanquished first authoritarian leader. So I want to end uh, and leave the last word for the man I began with, Vladimir Putin. He's known for these great pictures of himself in heroic es escapades. I think this is photoshopped, but I like it. Recently, Mr. Putin offered this bit of wisdom that I believe has relevance for our subject this evening. He said, whoever wants the Soviet Union back has no brain. And then he paused. But whoever doesn't miss it has no heart. Alexei Ratmansky has both a brain and a heart. His Shostakovich trilogy is a vehicle that brilliantly gives form to this maddeningly paradoxical climate of blind despair, but also energized creativity that was the world Soviet Russia created for so many artists. Thank you very much. And so we got like five minutes for questions. If there are any questions, comments, Yes, and there is that microphone there, or you can shout, but. Could you talk just for a second about Bright Stream? Because didn't the librettist uh, was, you know the story. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the censored, the censored ballets. It sounds like you know the details of it as well. I mean, Fodor Lukupov was the choreographer he was, he, he, like Shostakovich, was fired and rehired repeatedly if he tried very hard to make what he thought would be a politically correct ballet. It's about um, a group of dancers who come to a peasant town, and what they're going to do is make art that's going to teach the peasants and reach to them. And it ends up that the peasants are more informed than the artist. And that image there of David Halberg in drag is um, he's pressed into, um, into performing as a ballerina. And he tells a story in um, having learned that role that at first he told Alexei Ratmansky, no way, he said. I'm not putting on a dress. I'm not putting on point shoes. And then he, he said, you know, after a while I trusted... Alexei very much, and he said, I didn't have to work, because for me, just to wear a dress was enough work, um, and that the, the character took care of itself, but, but Ratmansky's gone back to the original, the same as he's um, done with the Bolt, and reimagined them brilliantly, so you see, you kind of see um, a reference, but a very smart commentary simultaneously, it happens on so many levels. 
Um, I don't know if that's fully what you want, but I mean, it's, it, it, it's a, anything about him could go on for, for great length. And about these ballets. And other, yes? Well, thank you very much. I was worried that I didn't, I didn't want to be, you know, in any way satirize Mr. Putin in an unfair way. So I appreciate that very much um, uh, for hearing that. Other, other comments or? No? Well, I think we're, we're good time-wise. Thank you very much. You're a really lovely audience.